Hello and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focused topic, and through the YJBM podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of this issue's subject matter. Today's episode is related to our December 2021 issue on rare diseases. In today's episode, we talk to Carrie Flynn, an MD-PhD student in the microbiology department here at Yale. She has a unique perspective on rare diseases since her research is on rare amoeba-borne diseases, and she also is a rare disease patient herself. We hope you enjoy today's episode and that you can learn a lot about rare diseases from our conversation with Carrie. Welcome to today's episode of the YJBM podcast. I'm your host, Lizzie, a fourth year PhD candidate in the microbiology department. And I'm your co-host, Emma, a fourth year PhD student in cell biology. And today we're joined by Carrie Flynn. Carrie, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, hi, I'm Carrie. I'm a seventh year MD PhD student. Uh, My PhD is in microbiology. So Carrie, thank you for being here. And I think the best place to start for a rare disease podcast is what is a rare disease? Like what is the definition of what makes something a rare disease? Yeah, so there's several definitions of it in the US. The definition that we use is any disease that affects less than 200,000 people. Um, and so that's the, that's the most commonly used definition here. And how many people are in the US? Um, there's about 320 million people. Okay, so that kind of gives us a scale of not many. <laughs> um, yes, although I think interestingly, Um, and we might get to this later as well, Um, because there are so many rare diseases, it actually is, there are many more people who are affected than that definition makes it seem. Um, And I think when you imagine how many rare diseases that we have not yet discovered or been able to define or diagnose, um, it it ends up being a lot of people. So then that kind of leads nicely into the next question of like, who has these diseases? Where are they? Are they genetic? Are they acquired both? Uh, Yeah, so they're definitely both. So some rare diseases are are purely genetic. Some rare diseases are are acquired. Uh, Some are many, if not most, are a mix of genes and environment. Um, I think that the the majority of known identified rare diseases um, are genetic, but I think that that's because of the tools and the technologies that we've had available so far, and that um, it's it's much easier to identify, for example, a Mendelian genetic disease, um, given our current technologies, than it is to identify some other types of rare diseases. Um, but I think that the fact that the majority of them are these like monogenetic, um, diseases highlights the fact that we, we are not able to identify the overwhelming majority of rare diseases still. So I know you touched earlier on the idea that, you know, the number, like the actual number of people who have a rare disease is like actually fairly large if you 
you know, think about all the people who have all of the various rare diseases. Do you know off the top of your head, and if not, it's fine, about, you know, sort of globally, like what percentage of people are experiencing or have a rare disease? Yeah, so conservative estimates are around 5% of people, I believe. Um, but there are, there are other estimates that are much higher. Um, for example, that maybe 10% of the population has a rare disease. Um, and as I mentioned, because I think so many rare diseases are, are still not identified, the majority probably are still not identified. We know very little still about the human body and human biology. Um, I, I think it could end up being a much, much larger percentage of the population. Yeah, that's very true. I feel like you need basic science to get to a certain point where you, you know, understand the biology enough to then be able to understand how it might go wrong. And so, you know, I feel like it, it takes a lot of knowledge to actually be able to, you know, diagnose a rare disease. Um, and that's sort Definitely. of, Yeah. Um, and isn't that always the case? Like you always need to start with the basic science, like nothing happens unless you have the basic science first. Well, I guess I would argue that, and this is coming from the, I'm, I'm, I am a train, I'm a physician scientist in training, speaking to two basic scientists, right? So we all believe in what we are training to do. Um, of and course. I, yeah. <laughs> and my, the science side of me does basic science, but um, although my work is also very translational, but I think, um, I guess I think it can all, it can all start anywhere and then it, but it, it must ultimately go to the basic science or we will never understand anything. Right. right. Um, but I do think that this is something that's very attractive about, um, being a physician scientist to me is that the ability to see something happen in a person and say, we don't understand what's happening here or like you know after you you go down every rabbit hole trying to figure it out and you consult every expert and it's still totally unclear what's happening um that then can really fuel the basic science that can happen to figure it out or even if we know even if you're able to diagnose somebody or to basically identify the syndrome or the disease then the so so often the next step of that is well what do we do about it and the answer is we have nothing right so then you have to go back to the lab and the basic science um but so i i think that i agree with what you said about it takes a lot of knowledge right um and i i think that as we get all of the low-hanging fruit um diagnosed and identified that it's going to be more and more difficult to identify new diseases um, and it's going to take more and more knowledge and training and, and expertise. And, you and, know, talk, talking about this, it makes me think like, even for diseases that we don't consider rare, we, you need a lot of information from the physician side, from the basic science side to be able to do anything about something like diabetes. We had to learn a ton before we could actually do anything about it. And it seems like the problem with rare diseases is that you need such high level niche knowledge, but you have such a low, like you have such a low end, like you have so few people who like, you just have a very low sample size. So you need this, you need the same kind of highly specific in-depth knowledge that you need for any other disease, 
but it's just so much more challenging to get it. That seems like the crux of the problem. Yeah, agreed. And also because of that, um, there's just much less funding, for example. So um, most, you know, most rare diseases just are never going to get the kind of funding um, that something like diabetes or cancer will get. Um, and even within that space, the overwhelming majority of funding goes towards um, genetic diseases or things like a lot of metabolic diseases have been identified, one, because they affect kids, um, and we care about kids a lot, rightly so, um, yes. <laughs> and also many of them are, are fatal very early in life, um, but also because they teach you about metabolism more broadly, right? They, they help us understand human biology um, in a broader context. Um, so studying them is, is very valuable to the NIH, whereas, um, like, for example, the, the rare disease that I study, um, I study amoeba infections, and they're very rare. They don't necessarily, you know, teach you about basic human biology, um, although I could make arguments about how they can. <laughs> um, and so those are not considered to be valuable um, either to the NIH or to a drug company, um, because, for example, I mean, with infectious diseases that are, you know, like a, a short-term treatment, like the goal is a cure that it was, it's a short-term treatment. It's not a chronic um, disease. So then also it's not going to get funding from pharmaceutical companies, um, which is a big change that's happened in recent years is that rare diseases that are chronic and require chronic treatments um, have recently become of interest in, in, you know, certain ones of them have become of interest to drug companies um, that they can, they can develop new treatments, often like monoclonal antibodies or um, other biologic treatments that can be quite profitable. And so there are like, there are these handful of rare diseases that have all of a sudden gotten um, new therapies that are great um, because they, they are of financial interest to pharmaceutical companies, but then the rest of the rare diseases are, are still quite neglected. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's always interesting how the the funding at the end of the day can sometimes drive our knowledge, um, especially when it comes to these sorts of things that are affecting a very small group of people. Um, but I wanted to transition now, um, since you briefly mentioned your own research, um, we would love to hear a little bit more about the rare disease that you specifically study and learn a little bit more about it. Yeah, so I study uh, infections caused by free-living amoebas. So there are three, um, three genera of amoebas that cause disease in humans. So there's Nyglaria, Balamuthia, and Acanthamoeba. So I primarily work with Acanthamoeba castellanii, which is the main species of Acanthamoeba that causes disease in humans. Um, but all three of them have, they have similar uh, types of infections with some differences. So for acanthamoeba, um, it can cause infections in the, the brain um, in mostly immunocompromised people. Uh, these infections are almost always fatal. There are no drugs developed to treat amoeba infections. 
um, doctors use a combination of antifungals, antibiotics, um, and it, it's just uh, throw like 10 or 12 drugs against the wall and hope something will work. Um, and they almost never do. So there's only a small handful of survivors of these diseases. Um, additionally, acanthamoeba can cause keratitis, which is an eye infection um, in healthy contact lens wearers. And that eye infection is very serious. Um, it often leads to blindness or loss of the eye. Um, and with acanthamoeba, uh, disease both of the brain and of the eye is often uh, recurrent. So you think you've cured it and then a couple months later it comes back. Um, that's not the case for Nyglaria, although it can also happen with Valamuthia. That's interesting. So that's terrifying and I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I was actually interested then. Um, I was curious if there was like a geographical component to this, like are these sorts of infections happening in a certain region of the word, world where the amoeba are present or are the amoeba everywhere and we just aren't aware of them? <laughs> Yeah, so they are ubiquitous in soil and fresh water in the environment, and they have been identified all over the world. However, the um, overwhelming majority of confirmed cases have been in the United States, and the overwhelming majority of, of confirmed cases have been in the southern states of the United States. Um, and so there are there's sort of two possibilities here. Um, one of them is that is the the old the old school thought is that they are more common in warm water and that they they thrive better in warm waters. Um, that may or may not actually be true. Um, it may be more about exposure. So, for example, you are more likely to go swimming in a freshwater lake if it's warm than if it's cold <laughs> um, is part of it. But uh, the fact that the overwhelming majority of confirmed cases are in the U.S., I think it really highlights <clears throat> just how underdiagnosed it is. Um, diagnosis is very difficult. Even in the United States, you can't confirm a diagnosis in, without the CDC. You have to actually send samples to the CDC. Um, so the hospital, there are certain diagnostic tests that an individual hospital can do, but they are the, the confirmatory PCR um, is actually only at the CDC. So you have to mail them the clinical samples and you have to know to even think about it, right? You have to know that that's what you need to do with these samples. Uh, like it, there are many barriers to diagnosis, um, but in other parts of the world, there have been attempts to um, recently to try to diagnose more cases. And every time that there is a new study in a new place where they bring the ability to do PCR testing, all of a sudden they find all these cases. Um, and so I, I think it's much more widespread than was previously thought. Um, having said that, it is still definitely rare, um, but I think it's much more common or much less rare, I should say, than the numbers of confirmed cases lead us to believe. Yeah, that was my first thought when you said like, oh, most cases are in the Southern United States. I was, my first thought was that seems like a sampling bias, yeah. <laughs> especially if these amoeba are ubiquitous in soil. Like that seems like a diagnosis problem, not a, an infection, like a pattern of infection. Yeah. They're also ubiquitous in our homes. So, 
Um, oh no, I hate it. Yeah. No. There, are, <laughs> there are, uh, studies of taps in the, in households in the United States. Um, and basically everyone's house, you have at least one, one tap or shower head in your house that will test positive for the pathogenic free living amoebas. Um, but it, it's something like 80 or 85% of all taps in the United States, um, test positive because they're in the water. Um, and it, this is, there are interesting consequences to this that go beyond the risk of infection. Um, which I would say to be clear, you're not going to get, you're not going to get an amoeba in your brain from merely taking a shower. Um, but for example, if you do a nasal, like a sinus rinse with tap water, you certainly can get an amoeba in your brain. Um, and that is a well-known uh, cause of these infections. Um, but showering and contact lenses, for example, is a, is a big risk of getting the eye infection. Um, but beyond that, there are other interesting consequences. For example, um, these amoebas have endosymbionts. So there are many, many types of bacteria that live inside of them and that's, that's their home in the environment. Um, and the best example of this is, is Legionella. Um, and so uh, I like to think about these amoebas, which are actually quite similar biologically to macrophages in humans um, as the evolutionary training ground for intracellular bacteria that can cause infections in humans. So many of the intracellular bacteria um, that cause infections in humans that come from the environment live in, in these amoebas in the environment. So you can imagine if your tap is colonized with these amoebas and these amoebas are then hosting pathogenic bacteria, that it, that can lead to exposure to humans to pathogenic bacteria as well. So, um, I don't like that. Uh, how afraid should I be? <laughs> like, you know, you said I, I'm probably fine showering, but like, I don't want Legionella in my home and I don't want Pseudomonas in my home. Like, can I get rid of the amoebas in my home? <laughs> Do we need to get rid of the amoebas in our home? Right. <laughs> uh, you almost certainly cannot get rid of them. <laughs> um, I, Thanks. I, think, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that uh, there are trying to get rid of them. And like the question of should we get rid of them is, is actually a relevant question specifically for people with, uh, with chronic structural lung disease. So people who have things like cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis, COPD, um, who are very high risk for, uh, for both acute and chronic infections with many of these environmental bacteria. Um, and so there is a thought that many of these bacteria actually come from uh, shower heads and from these like chronic biofilms that inhabit shower heads. And so many doctors are advising patients to um, regularly try to detach and disinfect their shower heads with bleach, um, which I would say I think is we don't have the, we don't have like the clinical and epidemiological data to show that that's effective. Um, but it, it's thought that it, it could be useful. Um, I would say that in general, the amount of bleach you need to disinfect the amoebas is higher than what you would need to disinfect most of the bacteria. Um, and I think that that's not really been part of the conversation. So that's something I usually add when 
physicians are discussing this, that maybe we should bump up the bleach concentration a bit. Um, but I think for the average person, it's not really a concern. For the average person, I tell them, you know, don't snort water up your nose. If you do a sinus rinse, use um, water that was boiled and then cooled or distilled water. Um, don't shower in, con in your contact lenses. Don't swim in your contact lenses. Um, and to the dissatisfaction of my nieces and nephews, I generally advise that uh, kids wear like nose clips when they're swimming in freshwater lakes. Um, I say kids because they're the ones who are most likely to be splashing around and diving and like risk getting water shot up their nose. Um, but when, so when I'm in a freshwater lake, uh, if I'm playing with my nieces and nephews, I also wear nose clips. <laughs> hmm. All for the nose clips now. Also, I'm never swimming in a freshwater lake. That's you have <laughs> thoroughly freaked me out. <laughs> so, you know, now that we have both become terrified, but also reassured. <laughs> um, I'm curious, um, what drew you to studying these amoeba-borne diseases in particular? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that originally I was very interested in, in these amoebas as the, um, the host cell for many of these environmental bacteria that can cause human disease. Um, because previously I've never studied amoebas or um, parasites, I've studied bacteria and I always considered myself a bacteriologist. Um, but I started thinking about, um, especially with the bacteria that I study, Pseudomonas, um, before I started my PhD, I was thinking about um, Pseudomonas has all of these features that are host adapted features. And yet Pseudomonas is an environmental bacteria. It's not considered, it's not a bacteria that evolved for humans to deal with humans. Um, and so I started thinking about what, why does it have secretion systems? Like why does it have all these host adapted features um, and there, one of the answers, there are several answers to that, but one of them are these amoebas that it has to deal with these amoebas in the environment. Pseudomonas also, um, you know, has to deal with worms and, uh, plants and all of these other types of eukaryotic cells that, uh, it can, um, that it can infect, but, um, but amoebas are one of these things. And because they are so similar to macrophages, uh, I started thinking about it as like a really interesting system and possibly like a more evolutionarily relevant system to understand um, pseudomonas biology and pseudomonas infections. But then through that, I got really interested in these amoeba infections themselves and the fact that they are incurable um, and then started trying to develop um, new drugs to treat them. And I also want to add, so for our audience, uh, Carrie and I are in the same department, so I see her research in progress talks. Um, and I know, Carrie, that you've been working with very, like, specific foundations and you've, because this field is so small, you've been working with, like, the actual people who have had family members and loved ones who have been diagnosed with these diseases. Yeah. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I am connected with the Jordan Smelsky Foundation for Amoeba Awareness, which is an organization that was started by uh, two parents 
who lost their only son when he was 11 years old um, to Neglaria. Neglaria is not the amoeba that I study, but Neglaria is the, um, it's the amoeba that's, that's commonly known in the press as the brain-eating amoeba. And that amoeba does, in fact, um, the brains of perfectly healthy people. So um, acanth amoeba is, is unlikely to cause a brain infection if you are not very immunocompromised, but Neglaria will infect anyone. Um, and unfortunately, um, their son Jordan was infected with Neglaria and passed away. Um, and that was about seven years ago now. And so his parents really did something quite incredible with their grief. Um, and they started this foundation. And the work that this foundation has done is is so remarkable. So um, it, it covers a, a, a wide breadth of things, given that it was started by his parents who are not scientists and, um, you know, are not in public health, are, are not in these fields. Um, and so that includes things like, for example, um, they have worked with doctors to develop um, an alert system in the electronic medical record um, so that if a patient comes in with symptoms of uh, that are similar to bacterial meningitis, which is how Neglaria presents, it looks a lot like acute bacterial meningitis. Um, if patients come in with that and you, when you put in the orders for the labs to diagnose it, um, the computer will prompt you to ask if the patient has fresh water exposure. And then if you answer yes, then the the electronic medical record will prompt you um, to include testing for Neglaria. Um, and so they have, they developed this electronic medical record alert system and it, they have already implemented it at thousands of hospitals across the country. Um, and because of that, there have been several more cases that have actually been diagnosed. Um, they've also worked with, um, with lab, uh, with lab techs and, um, with uh, clinical lab directors to develop trainings on how to diagnose these infections. Um, and because of that, not only have there been diagnoses that probably would have been missed before, um, but there's a case of a young man in Florida who got diagnosed and is actually one of the only survivors, like only known survivors of Neglaria. Um, because he got this very early diagnosis due to the trainings that their foundation did. Um, they also fund research, including um, they are funding like a rapid point of care diagnostic test for Neglaria, um, which uh, the CDC has been developing in, um, in collaboration with them. Um, they do a bunch of awareness stuff. They do a bunch of of really great charity work, it, like for example, um, uh, getting toys and bikes and sporting goods into the into the hands of low-income kids at Christmas, um, and uh, they also importantly have been hosting a conference. COVID has unfortunately interrupted it, but um, they, as it has with many things, <laughs> yes. Um, but in 2019, so the year before COVID started, um, I got to go to this conference that they held in Florida and it, it, I've never been to a conference like this before. I mean, it was organized by this foundation, by these parents. So by, by lay people, not by scientists, 
but they invited all of the amoeba scientists in the country, um, but they also invited um, uh, the families of patients to come. And so we were all together. And so one day was for all of us and one day was the scientific talks. Um, and there were scientific talks both days also, but the, the, so the second day was like scientists for scientists. And then the, the, the families and patients who wanted to stick around did. Um, but they also had in, um, in laboratory techs and all of these people who do um, diagnosis. And it was just, I, I like cannot express how impactful it was and hearing parents talk about um, you know, losing their children to these diseases. Uh, it, it's just, it really, really fuels you to get working. I mean, I, I think about it all the time and about how moving it is to hear them speak about their experiences, how difficult diagnosis was, um, the fact that there were really no treatments available. Um, and it has made it has made the late nights in lab uh, feel much more purposeful. <laughs> and it has fueled my desire, I think, to actually get to the end point of something very translational, like a drug. Um, it has really pushed me to go for that goal and not to just hope for um, like, not to just want the basic science, right? Or just a cool paper or just like, not to think about this in terms of only my own academic career um, and like discovery for the sake of discovery and science for the sake of science, which is all so important, but to really think about, can we actually move this forward to the place where like parents in the future won't lose their kids? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's incredible. And I'm listening and like, I have two nephews, they're six and seven and it just, it's indescribable. And just thinking about the possibility and I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking like, that's, that's amazing for you because like, you know, we are fortunate enough to be at an institution like Yale, where we have the funding, we have the support, we have the resources and we can actually do something about this. Like you can actually do something about this. And that is amazing. That's, I'm just, I'm like getting chills thinking about it. Like, you know, it's, it's so easy to like sit in lab and, you know, sit and read your papers and present at conferences and have it be very sterile and dissociated. And I think there's, there's kind of a perception in the public as well that science is sterile and dissociated, but then like your story is just, you know, it turns that completely on its head. And I think that's just incredible. Yeah. And one of the things that the Smolskis always say that is very relevant to this podcast is they say, you know, it's not rare when it happens to you, um, which I think they really emphasize that, right? That, for example, um, a lot of these parents talk about how, you know, they even raise the question um, of could this be a brain eating amoeba? Like, as their child was in the ICU um, and they were spending all their time trying to find answers when the doctors didn't have any. Um, and they were basically told, no way, that's so rare. Um, and I think it, it, it just, it, it highlights that even though something is rare, it doesn't, 
it doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? Or that the impacts of it are not devastating because they are. Um, and I think, I think for me, especially hearing that working with a rare disease can be quite challenging um, because there are very limited tools. There's very limited funding. I mean, I've, I've spent most of my PhD working on just being able to really reliably identify whether the amoebas are alive or dead, which is one of these things that is, <laughs> is so basic. And in in any other field, I feel like would not even be an issue. Like I would start, and that's something that people had already worked out 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and where there's many options. And, um, and it turns out that that's been actually a huge challenge. Um, that has taken so much time and effort and you feel like, okay, I'm spending years not even getting to my actual research question and doing the actual science I'm here to do, but just trying to develop the tools to do my science. Um, and so that can be incredibly frustrating. Um, and so I think having that, you know, having always the thought in your mind about like why you're doing this and having that purpose of of why you're doing this and who you're doing this for is is very helpful and really can keep you moving forward. Yeah, I remember your first rip talk where where you presented this as as an issue, and I remember sitting there like, "Huh, that is a problem that needs solving." <laughs> <laughs> like, and then I can I can speak for like from as an observer that you have done this. Like I remember your next rip talk, you were like, we did it, we made progress. <laughs> and I think that's just amazing. And I want I, I want to come back to what you said about um it's not rare when it happens to you. And I want to use that to transition to your own rare disease because now you're not just studying a rare disease, you also have one. So I want to ask you about what that's been like for you and how that has affected your life and affected your perspective on things like rare diseases. Yeah, so I do. I have a rare inflammatory disease and um, I did not get a correct diagnosis until actually I started after I started medical school and I I had I took five years off between undergrad and medical school. So it was pretty late in life. I was in my late 20s when I got diagnosed. Um, and the diagnosis was life-changing because then I, you know, started correct treatments and then I suddenly became much more functional. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good information will do that. Yes. Um, and I think it's interesting because also, you know, I had been seen by, I had been seen by many specialists at many of the top institutions in this country. So um, I had been seen by doctors at Johns Hopkins and Penn and NYU and Cornell um, and all of these, you know, wonderful academic medical centers. But it, it wasn't until I saw um, someone at Yale who happened to be an expert on this rare disease, who the first time I saw this doctor, he said, I know what's wrong with you. <laughs> like, uh, I am, I am sure I know what the problem is. Um, and I think, go ahead, Lizzie. Oh, I was just going to say that must have been so validating for you and so relieving to just like hear an answer. Yeah, I, I think um, it was, I was, 
first of all, I was really surprised because at that point I had become, I think very, I was very jaded that, and I just felt very, I didn't think I would ever really get a diagnosis at that point. Um, I, I thought, you know, I'm just a sick person and nobody really knows why. And, you know, they can tell me they can diagnose like all these random syndromes that are part of this, but nobody actually knows why this is happening. And, you know, we're just kind of doing symptomatic treatment to the best that we can. And I, I never really thought at that point that I was going to get a diagnosis because I had never gotten one. <laughs> um, and so I, I was very surprised because I did not expect to hear that. I just expected to kind of hear what I'd heard before and have to repeat all the same labs I'd done before. And, um, and then he was pretty confident that he knew what was going on. And it was, it was very surprising. And then when there, when some of the testing we did, um, like supported that hypothesis. And then more importantly, when the treatment we tried had such a big impact on my health, it was incredibly relieving. Um, and it was, it made me feel very hopeful for the first time in a long time. And I think that really highlights, you know, going back to the, the Smelsky Foundation, is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah, the Jordan Smelsky Foundation. Yeah, so going back to the Jordan Smelsky Foundation, just how much of an impact it can make to have these answers and to have this research being done and to just have somebody come forward and say, hey, I think I know what's going on. That just, I, you know, putting myself in your shoes and in the shoes of Jordan Smelsky's parents, like just that must have been just like you said, life-changing to, to finally get to a point where you come to some kind of understanding. And I feel like, especially as scientists, like we're, we're always like looking for answers and it must've been infuriating to just not know for so long. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that, I actually think the not knowing has much broader impacts even than just like on the individual person and their individual health or even like those around them and connected to them. Um, while of course those are very important things. Um, I actually think especially in this era of um, misinformation um, about health and um, medical information. And, you know, we think about it a lot as it relates to COVID and COVID vaccines, but it's, it's actually a lot broader than that. And it's something that the, that in medicine people are grappling with all the time is that there's a lot of um, medical misinformation that spreads quite rapidly um, and can be really damaging to patients, but can also be really damaging more broadly to society. And I think that a lot of that actually comes from patients who are sick or who are having a problem, but who don't know what's wrong and who don't have the, the tools and the resources available to them to help them get an answer. Um, and so for example, um, like listening to the parents of kids who died from amoeba diseases, talk about how they went to the internet, you know, while their kid is in the ICU, um, and the doctors didn't have answers. I think that's a normal and actually quite rational uh, reaction to that. Um, and I think that that happens all the time and it happens in much less serious contexts as well. Um, I think people, you know, 
people do that for very minor medical concerns and people do it for very major medical concerns. Um, and I think, I think it's easy sometimes for physicians to say, oh, we'll just stay off the internet. Um, but I think that that's not what people are going to do, especially when people don't have access to healthcare, right? Like this ultimately is like a broader healthcare system problem. And the fact that people don't have access to high quality healthcare or healthcare at all. Um, and even when people do, like in my situation, even when I, I did have access to healthcare and excellent healthcare, um, when something is rare and not that many doctors know about it, like our healthcare system is just not designed to diagnose and treat rare diseases. Um, and part of that also is the volume um, of patients that providers need to see. So when you have to see so many patients and you have very little free time and you have very little time to spend like digging into the, the history and the background and getting through the like long chart history of a patient, your, the likelihood that you are going to identify a rare disease goes down significantly. Um, but sorry, that was a, I detoured. Going back to what I was saying was that, um, yeah, I think that like the lack of information or like the, like the lack of a diagnosis, I think is actually a key driver of the spread of medical misinformation. And it's one that I think is not always recognized and appreciated. I think that's a fascinating point. And I don't think I've ever thought about it like that, but you're right. That's totally rational. Like, you know, if you're desperate for understanding and your motivations are good, then, and perfectly rational, as you say, like, I think that that's, that's a really interesting point. And I'm thinking, you know, for myself, like, you know, just as an encouragement to have more compassion and not, not jump to, just stay off the internet. Cause it's so easy to say, especially when we are coming from this privileged position of like, we do have the knowledge to be able to search NCBI, but you know, not everybody does and that's okay. And we can have compassion for those people in their grief and in their desperation. So this is yeah. motivating me to be a better person and a better <laughs> communicator. <laughs> Yeah. And even, even when people have a diagnosis, I think like when there are lack of treatments and especially lack of cures for things, um, that fuels it too. Like I see I'm in several online, um, like support groups for patients who have my rare disease. And I, I see it every time I go on, it's like, it's patients who, um, sometimes patients who have the diagnosis, who are like not responding well to treatment or they're not getting the right treatment because their doctor doesn't really know a lot about it. Or, um, they're just like, they're looking for what is helping all of you. And some of the answers that they get are good and correct answers that are, you know, that are shown to be beneficial. And some of the answers they get are, are kind of nonsense, but unlikely to cause harm. And then some of the answers they get are very likely to cause harm and are not going to help. Um, but you know, when people don't have, don't have something that will make them feel better, they start, you know, looking outside of the doctor's office. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's interesting to kind of, it's interesting to be in those communities and watch some of this unfold, like as somebody who is who is undergoing medical training, but also who is like affected by this <laughs> um, and who has, you know, has done similar things and like looked outside of, um, 
outside of my doctor's office for things that would make me feel better. Um, and, you know, luckily I never, before medical school, I never, you know, engaged in medical treatments in, in I shouldn't say med- in non-medical treatments that were very likely to cause <laughs> harm, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but, you know, like when you're, when you're sick and you're not getting answers, you're going to go looking for them. And unfortunately, when you go looking for them, there is a lot along the way that can cause a lot of harm. Yeah. I think you have like just a really unique perspective here, like as a rare disease patient, as someone with medical training and as a researcher who's studying a rare disease. And so I'm curious how your personal experiences as a rare disease patient has impacted your work in the lab studying these amoeba-related diseases and sort of your perspective on, on your research? Yeah, I think, um, so there's, you know, there's the positive and the negative aspects of it. The negative aspects of it are, um, for example, I just missed almost a month in lab because unfortunately I contracted COVID over Christmas break. And even though I was vaccinated and boosted, um, I got much sicker than most other people um, who are vaccinated and boosted and, you know, had complications and like, luckily I still did not get severely ill. You know, I wasn't hospitalized, but I, I did get sicker than everybody else I know who got it, who was in the same situation. Um, and I'm still like dealing with some of the, um, the like downstream complications of that infection. Um, and so I think that is like something that I'm always very aware of, like, and even just, I think thinking about disability and disability justice in science and medicine from like the side of providers is, is something that is not happening enough. And like, you know, this, this world being accessible to, um, people who are disabled or chronically ill is a huge issue, um, that we definitely don't talk enough about. So there's that. And like, also just thinking about like, um, you know, like even when I'm doing well, like my, my body requires management that not everybody's bodies require. Um, and so, you know, luckily I have a PI and I'm in a program that are very supportive, very flexible, like, let me do what I need to do, um, so that I can keep working and, um, and keep moving forward. And I can like take time when I need time. Um, but I think that that's something that definitely not everybody has. Um, but then from the positive aspect, I think that, um, like I was saying about how, you know, hearing from these families of people, of families who were affected by amoeba diseases, like really fuels me. Um, I think that probably having a rare disease helps with that as well. And just like thinking about, um, you know, really the need for, for science to move forward, but also for science to move forward in a way that hopefully really helps people. Um, and I think that, you know, sometimes, sometimes like our push for translational research probably hinders it because you can't get there without the basic science. And, and I think some, I think like CRISPR is the best example of that, like right now, right. Is like this, this, technology that is revolutionizing science and may one day revolutionize medicine came from like the most basic of basic science research that had absolutely no like intention of being 
directed towards human medicine and, and could end up changing all of human medicine. Um, but so I think like the basic science for the sake of basic science is incredibly important. Um, but I also think that like, it's important to keep our eye on the ball of when there are opportunities for translation or to like move things forward and get things towards the clinic that like we need to do that right we can't just stay we can't just stay in the basic science we have to try to keep pushing it towards um towards the clinic as much as possible yeah i totally agree like the people who are really trying to bridge the basic and translational sciences are doing such important work and i mean there aren't a lot of people who are sort of in that position of, you know, pushing the basic science towards the clinic. Um, so I just wanted to wrap up here. Um, we've learned a lot of really interesting things from you, both about science, about amoebas, about how we shouldn't worry about our showers <laughs> if we're able-bodied. Um, so I, I'm just- Big curious. relief. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. Um, and about your personal experiences with rare diseases, both as a patient and a researcher. So I'm curious if there's any, you know, message that you would like to send to people who are, you know, able-bodied, don't have personal experience with rare diseases as to how they can, you know, be a good ally to those who do and how they can, you know, support the, our advancement of knowledge about and treatment of rare diseases. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think being a good ally in general towards, um, you know, people who are sick, people who are disabled, people who are chronically ill, I think that that's, that also covers those affected by rare diseases. And that's very important. Um, and I think like, including including just thinking about these things and these people in every aspect of life is important. I think like accessibility is often an afterthought at best. Um, and that is a huge problem that needs to change. Um, I also think that um, part of that is, it, it's almost, it's difficult in many circumstances to do that without fundamentally changing things like our healthcare system, things like how our economy works, um, because all of those things are inherently not geared towards people who have any sort of like chronic illness or disability. Um, so that is that is definitely part of it. But then I also think, um, you know, scientific funding is so limited, <laughs> and and I think it is everyone's job to try to change that mostly by pushing for expansion of the NIH budget and pushing for um, like diversification of what it is that we fund. Um, but there are other ways to do it as well. And I think that um, like what the Jordan Smolsky Foundation is doing is an incredible example of how just regular people can are you know they are they are engaging in scientific funding um they are funding research which is incredible um that's not something that most people will be able to do but it, it is an example of sometimes that can happen um but i do think that um we really do need to expand 
who is getting funding. And we probably need to change how the funding allocation process works to some degree. Um, and I think that we also should be thinking about, you know, better ways to get information out there. Cause like every doctor cannot know about every rare disease, right? And I think we need some really creative thinking about how to get that information in the hands of doctors easily who don't know about a rare disease, but suspect a patient might have one. And there are some tools that have been developed for that, but I think, um, I think that that space is still really lacking and is a place that I would, I would like to see some, some creative uh, energy go towards. Yeah, this is, you know, it's, it's a challenging problem, you know, because you're right, it's, it's kind of built into the foundation of our society and making changes to those structural foundations are extremely challenging. And, I, you know, whenever I'm thinking about these kinds of like massive structural issues, I take, I take some comfort in the idea that it's a challenging problem. And it, that's why it doesn't have a solution yet. Like if it was easy, it wouldn't be still be an issue. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like, it sounds like, you know, you are at the forefront of making this change and that what we can do as listeners is to keep listening and to keep an open mind and to, you know, learn and, you know, ask, ask questions. And I, would you add anything to that to that list of things that like concrete things that we can do? You know, I think like learning and listening and asking questions and like keeping an open mind and just trying to be supportive and helpful. I mean, like what more can any of us do for any situation, right? Um, and I think that that's that's especially important for um, people in science and medicine. Um, and like not, it, you know, if something isn't isn't fitting the script, like the, the common script, right. To be yeah. open-minded enough to think that maybe it'll, maybe it's something that falls outside the common script and like, is, is a rare disease, um, or is, you know, an opportunity to, to do something different, um, which is like all part of, I think, hopefully how we're all training to think in science and medicine, but often the, the realities of day-to-day -day work often like prevent that kind of thinking. Um, so I think you're correct, both in terms of like everyone and how everybody can be um, kind of a better ally, but also like how um, people who hold the power in science and medicine can. This is such an interesting and informative conversation. Yes, thank you so much for being with us. This is this has been fascinating. And I, I know I'm gonna have things to think about for a long time after this. Um, I wanna give you the chance because the Jordan Snelsky Foundation is incredible. I'm I'm so I like I'm just in awe of of what they do. So can you uh, give us some some plugs for if they have social media or if they have a website, how uh, we could donate, how our listeners could donate if if they are able to? Yes, definitely. Um, I would love to. So yeah, the Jordan Smolsky Foundation is on social media. Um, so if you search Jordan Smolsky Foundation, you should find it. Um, and then they also, they have a website. Um, it's jordansmolskyfoundation.org. 
Um, Smelski is S-M-E-L-S-K-I. Um, and so it's the Jordan Smelski Foundation for Amoeba Awareness. Um, and I will say that this foundation originally was developed to specifically focus on Nigleria, and that's still their driving mission because that is um, what took their son from them. Um, but they have been incredibly open-minded and generous of, of mind and spirit to also, for example, um, expand their their view towards all of the amoeba diseases, um, all of the all types of amoeba infections. And so um, extra kudos to them. But yes, please visit their social media. They post stuff all the time. Um, they, like I said, they do lots of great um, fundraisers and other um, charity work to honor the memory of their son. Um, and yeah, visit their website. There's lots of like great information on there as well. Right. That's awesome. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. This is, uh, it was awesome to have you here. And I, I really enjoyed hearing your really unique perspective. Well, thank you both so much for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. And I'm glad that you guys are focusing on rare diseases this month. That's a great thing. Thanks so much to Carrie Flynn for providing her perspective on rare diseases as both a scientist, a physician, and a patient. If you'd like to hear more from Carrie, you can find her on TikTok at Babies. that's A-M-O-E-B-A-B-I-E-S, or you can find her on Twitter at the Doctors Flynn. that's at T-H-E-D-R-L-S-F-L-Y-N-N. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Yale Journal Biology and Medicine Podcast. There are many people behind this podcast that you never get a chance to hear. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home to YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thank you to the YJBM editorial board, especially our editors-in-chief, Kelsey Castle and Mallory Ellenson, and the deputy editors for the rare disease issues, Aishwara Nene and Shobana Subramian. We'd love your feedback and questions, so feel free to tell us your thoughts by emailing us at yjbm at yale.edu. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it on SoundCloud or Apple Podcasts. And as always, thank you for tuning into our podcast.